Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to the official government budget 2016 calculator. Question one. Are you a multimillionaire? Um, no. Oh well. And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tian and Duyeb, despite what the haters say. And I don't know about you, but I've been glued to the TV all week, which is partly due to an accident with some glue, but mostly because, wait, do you hear that? Yeah, that's the sound of it all blowing up in here. Parliament has been actually exciting for once, with more dramas than an episode of a soap opera, but in that show, all the characters are pretty hateable with no obvious leads. In the last few days, George Osborne has delivered a terrible budget, Universal cretin Ian Duncan Smith has finally realised he wasn't fit for work and resigned, and Labour almost had something to say about all of it. Almost. So, I'm not going to fill this bit with waffle as usual, because this is a jam-packed episode, which is mostly due to an accident with some jam, but also because there are all those things to talk about, plus this week's Partly Big Society and a great interview with David Powell from the New Economics Foundation on why this budget is bad for the planet as well as for people. So, tons of prime lols there. Yay, comedy! So, let's start with, well, whatever the opposite of a tribute. On Friday, Ian Duncan Smith resigned from his cabinet post as Secretary of State for Work and Pensions in what I'm sure history will describe as the only good cut the DWP have ever made. Apparently, he left over the further proposed cuts to disability benefits, which, after he spent six years making cuts to disability benefits, feels a bit like if Donald Trump resigned because someone suggested putting barbed wire on top of his proposed wall. Or if Coldplay resigned because someone suggested they make their songs even less interesting. Or if Adele resigned because someone suggested she name her next album after whatever her age is. Or if Kim Kardashian resigned from whatever it is she actually does because someone suggested she does even less. Or if... Look, you get the idea. I mean, the thing is, it just seems far more likely that Ian Duncan Smith actually resigned due to his stance on the EU clashing with that of the Prime Ministers, meaning he might be booted out at a later date anyway, 
or even more likely than that, that he resigned due to losing a court battle to suppress a release of documents that show just how badly his universal credit scheme has failed. The scheme was meant to be extended to 12 million claimants by next year, and currently only 200,000 people have joined, which is not only missing the target, but aiming completely the wrong way from the target and instead shooting yourself in the foot. It's also costing about £10 billion more than was originally proposed, and suddenly you see why Ian Duncan Smith has decided it was a more attractive proposition to tell the world that he'd had the sort of change of heart that usually requires an operation first. I refuse to believe that he's now suddenly a hero of those in need, but in resigning, Dunko Donut has done one good thing, and that's crashed the government around him. Hooray! Who knew that Ian Duncan Smith leaving a party would actually ruin it? I'd have always thought the opposite. Firstly, the proposed PIP cuts have been dropped, as it's not great PR if even Welfare Nosferatu says that they're too harsh, whether he believes it or not. He also stated that Cameron and Osborne only care about people that vote for them and neglect others, which, to be fair, was pretty obvious, but kind of nice to hear it just confirmed. You know, it's a bit like if John Travolta, Simon Cowell or Tom Cruise ever opened up. We'd all say, oh, you didn't really need to, but we'd have a great sense of relief that they did. It must now be pretty clear to even the most dedicated Tory voters that austerity really is a farcical ideology rather than a working plan, especially if you can use it to give tax cuts to those with money while debilitating others. It's almost as if George Osborne spent his entire childhood reading Robin Hood backwards. David Cameron said in his official response to Ian Duncan Smith's resignation that he contributed an enormous amount to the work of the government which I think means that now 4,000 people on welfare has died as a result of his work, that's a little bit more cash that the government don't have to spend anymore. Well, okay, look, that's a little bit harsh. He didn't just contribute that. In fact, um, wait, what is the opposite of contribute? Hang on, hang on, I'll just do air quotes. Ian Duncan Smith contributed a lot to how the government work. So here we go. Ian Duncan Smith with your face like an evil demon who's accidentally possessed a big toe. Like a wronged egg. Like a, well, like a really, really horrible bastard's face. Here are your worstest ever moments. In no particular order. Number one. In July 2015, just after Ian Duncan Smith said that low-income families should receive benefits on prepaid cash cards so they wouldn't misspend money on alcohol and cigarettes, it turned out that he had over £1,000 owing on his parliamentary credit card, including a £39 breakfast. Now look, I love a breakfast. I really bloody love a breakfast. But 39 quid? I mean, is it served with golden goose eggs? Is the bacon gleaned off the legs of those who spent rent on some fags instead? I'm guessing, considering the rest of Ian Duncan Smith's career, there was just an awful lot of waffle. Number two. Just before that, in April of last year, Ian Duncan Smith claimed that the way to deal with the problem of zero-hour contracts was to rebrand them. Because nothing makes slave labour and exploitation seem more attractive than a snappy name, right? Ian's plan was to call them flexible hours, which, while sounding like the sort of thing a yoga teacher would stick in her diary, was probably conceived on account of it sounding a bit like you have some working control over the total lack of control you have in work. I mean, come on, Ian, at least go for calling them magical rainbow sherbet dance employment and try glittering a turd. Number three. That wasn't the only rebranding IDS did during his job. He also redefined the official meaning of child poverty to not be about, well, poverty. Instead, it became about life chances, which goes to show how little he understands human beings, because we all only get one life chance. That's how life works. 
I mean, it's insane to remove the main thing that a term is about from the meaning of that term. You may as well decide to measure mass by what colour something is and your age by how you say the word potato. Number four. In 2013, after an appearance on a BBC Radio 4 show, Ian Duncan Smith heard that a market trader was surviving on £53 a week, and that's the lowest rate of job seekers allowance given to adults under 25. Ian Duncan Smith said that he could survive on £53 a week if he had to, and a petition asking him to do so gained 300,000 signatures overnight. But Ian backed down because he said it was just a stunt and that he'd been on Job Seekers twice in his life and knew what it was like, failing to mention that when he was on Job Seekers, he was while he was married to his wife, a wealthy daughter of a baron who owns a mansion that he lives in for free. Well done, Ian. Number five. In 2010, Ian Duncan Smith defended the government's horrible workfare scheme on the BBC by saying, Work helps free people. Which, funnily enough, was the Nazi slogan, the above the gates of Auschwitz. Yep, 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 yep. Number six. As the leader of the Conservative Party in 2002, and yes, that actually happened, Ian Duncan Smith said that he intended to be party leader for a very long time to come. Less than one year later, he got a vote of no confidence and was replaced by Michael Howard. That is how crap he was. Michael probably drinks blood. Howard. Yep, 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 yep. Number seven. That was not long after a BBC investigation found that Ian's CV claimed he'd studied at a university and a college that he'd never actually been to. Clearly, he'd just been so desperate for work to make him free. Let's hope whoever hires him next checks that CV pretty thoroughly. Number eight. In July 2013, Ian Duncan Smith was found by the UK Statistics Authority to have broken the code of practice for official statistics. Both Ian Duncan Smith and the DWP had claimed that more than 50% of decisions on disability living allowance entitlement were made on the basis of the claim alone without any additional medical evidence. The UK Statistics Authority discovered actually only 10% passed without any supporting medical evidence. And this was a number of claims that Ian had made that didn't have any proper statistic to back them up. But Ian responded by saying that he believed them all to be right. So that's okay then. You know, I mean, it's a shame that the public's beliefs have no grounding as well, because all of us believe that he was massively lying. And on top of all that, figures suggest that in the last couple of years, 90 people a month are dying after being incorrectly declared fit for work. Youth unemployment is extremely high, and Ian Duncan Smith's real first name is George. So he's an awful man. I did ask Twitter what sort of job he should go to next. I mean, bearing in mind that he is still actually an MP, whether we like it or not. But top of the bill of his jobs was a Dementor with 104% of the votes, followed by Nazi scientist at 93% of the votes and a workhouse master at 76%. In a true tribute, I made those percentage figures up, but I do believe in them, so I'm sure Ian Duncan Smith will find a suitable replacement career soon. In the cabinet, Ian's replacement, Stephen Crabb, is already doing him justice, having previously exclaimed that people can become ex-gay, which sounds like a great superhero film, but I don't think that's what he meant. Stephen Crabb announced in the Commons this week that they've scrapped the PIP cuts and have no further plans to make welfare savings beyond the ones they've legislated for. Which sounds great, except that the Conservatives have already said this doesn't mean they won't make further welfare cuts, they just haven't planned to yet. There's still time. Also, there are actually tons more welfare cuts that they have legislated that are still to come through, including the scrap tax credits cuts, which is now part of universal credit overall. 
So unfortunately, unlike many of his policies or credibility, Ian Duncan Smith's legacy continues to work. Budgets are, on the whole, extremely boring things. A dead-eyed man with the crappest red lunchbox you've ever seen reads a ton of numbers and 12 months later things are still awful but now you can't afford to buy wine to drown your sorrows with anymore. This year's budget was spectacularly rubbish though and not just because they haven't made the little red case light up when you open it like in Pulp Fiction yet. Instead, George Osborne's working out seemed to make as much sense as spending the entire UK GDP on a giant duck who can just fly us out of debt. Though at least in that scenario, you can see the bill coming a mile away. Do you see what I did there? Do you? Do you see what I did there? I'm really sorry. To sum it up quickly and only slightly painfully, Osborne spent much of the budget shifting around company tax payments so that the money from that will come in a little bit earlier, bringing in some funds. Sadly, this also means the money won't be there later when we might really need it, which is the sort of borrowing from the future even Doctor Who wouldn't piss about with. Two out of three of Osborne's previous targets have completely failed. The proposed tax credits cut that he U-turned on previously means that he's breached his pledge for a welfare spending cap. Then his second target of borrowing falling every year of Parliament also failed, and not just because Dave still hasn't returned his DVD copy of Babe Pig in the City yet. Now the Office for Budget Responsibility have predicted a deterioration in growth forecasts over the next five years, which not only means I'll never get to five foot six, but it also that George Osborne is likely to miss his third target of a 10 billion surplus on public finances by 2020. That could also lead to even lower wages and living standards too. So that's three failed targets. If he worked in a phone shop, he'd currently be forced to stand outside dressed in a mascot's costume, desperately assuring people that Blackberries aren't just for twats. Oh, and George Osborne cut tax for those with most money, while trying to make further cuts in support for disabled people. That last bit has thankfully been cancelled, but now that means that there's a £4 billion funding hole that can't be filled. You see, the giant duck idea really doesn't seem that bad now, does it? But despite all this... Osborne piled on the nonsense rhetoric at this year's spring budget as we have come to expect. Once again, he went on and on about we are the builders, which can only refer to how there seems to be more work needed than we were promised and it's a lot more money than originally estimated. He kept saying about how all of this was so that Britain can live within its means, failing to say that the current government are the most means yet. Then, of course, all the stuff about how fast the economy is growing, followed by how many cuts need to be made, as though human beings can't string incoherent thoughts together to realise that the former now means there's absolutely no reason for the latter anymore. And the other phrase George Osborne kept saying was that this budget was for the next generation, by which I can only assume means he really, really hates young people, especially as they're going to be the ones that bear the brunt of many of the environmental problems caused by several parts of last Wednesday's announcements. Sure, it's great that they can pay less for tampons and stay amused by the gif of Jamie Oliver dancing like a tit about the sugar tax as the world burns around them, but really, the few good bits pale in comparison to the fact that being the greenest government ever just seems to have been in regards to how much money their friends are pocketing through good business rates. Though I suppose it's also very beneficial for George Osborne to have a destroyed environment through his policies, as look, lizards do thrive in warmer climates. Anyway, to explain exactly what the environmental implications of the budget are, I spoke to David Powell at the New Economics Foundation, a think tank that promotes social, economic and environmental justice. Which sounds really nice, doesn't it? 
Usually the words think tank make me imagine a lot of brains just floating about in a toilet system. But the NEF are a really great independent organisation who I think make an awful lot of sense. And here's David to prove exactly that. Do you think that, as George Osborne said, uh, that this budget is actually a budget for the next generation? Hmm. Well, um, now here's a funny thing that happened. So I've been uh, working on environment and climate change stuff for a long time. And generally, on things like Twitter, people will get all upset about it. You know, environmenty types will say, what's George Osborne done? Not very much. Um, and, and this time, there were quite a few people, not environmenty usual suspects, there were quite a few people who were saying on Twitter, which obviously is the only way anyone ever discusses an opinion these days, <laughs> obviously, were, yeah. were basically saying, well, hang on a minute, you can't go around saying this is a budget for the next generation three months after the world signed the biggest ever climate change deal and not even mention climate change and not only that but you can't then go and cut taxes for the oil and gas industry and things like that so i mean obviously you know from an environmental point of view if you were serious about facing the single biggest challenge to the next generation that there is which is uncontrolled sea level rise and climate change then you would do something about that but he didn't so it isn't right yeah it does seem it does seem quite strange that that is the main thing i think will be affecting the next generation uh, and yeah. that's the main thing that he avoided. Um, classic George. Um, so speaking of sort of devil's advocate point of view, because I am a car user, but I'm also very passionate about the environment. But I understand that fuel duty probably shouldn't remain frozen because we need to tackle it and, and get uh, more investment in renewable energy. But what about the need for people to get to work and be able to afford to work? Is that not important as well? What's the way wow. forward? Yeah, okay. So uh, let's take that question to bits a bit, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so uh, fueled, first thing is fuel duty hasn't gone up uh, for in real terms for something like uh, 10 years, maybe slightly over 10 years. So there used to be a thing where fuel duty would go up by the rate of inflation or the rate of inflation plus a little bit. And that was scrapped by George Osborne, uh, formerly scrapped six uh, six years ago so fuel duty has been going down and down and down in real terms and it's actually lower now than it's been at any point since the year 2000 so first thing to note is fuel duty is a lot less than it used to be in real terms second thing is that every penny that the chancellor doesn't put fuel duty up by costs him cash because obviously in, in real terms if you're not putting a tax up you're cutting it um, because inflation is rising faster than the taxes, so therefore you're not getting as much in. So it's costing him uh, 300 million at least. In fact, actually, the Treasury says best part of 400 million for every penny that he doesn't increase fuel duty by, which over the course of this Parliament is adds up to something like two and a half billion quid. Um, now, fuel duty and renewable energy, which was the other bit of your question. I mean, that doesn't have a particularly strong link. What fuel duty is? It's not technically a green tax. I mean, it it is in so far as you know. It makes the cost of driving more expensive. And obviously, for some people, that's a challenge. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, your car and, and, and you know, what, what about people who, who don't have an alternative? Well, we do need much better public transport in this country, full stop. It's going to be harder to pay for if the government is throwing away tax money from not taxing uh, fuel properly so uh first thing we need to do um i think if he's going to increase fuel duty which is a really strong case for doing given that the price of oil is so low given that um he hasn't raised it for so long given that you know public transport is so weak that he should do that use the money to increase uh 
make public transport better, if it has impacts on key workers or people in remote constituencies, deal with that by giving the councils in those areas more cash, and then separately get on with funding renewable energy properly. But what he's doing is throwing away money because, you know, the context for this budget was, as we're beginning to discover in the last week, EU and the referendum and wanting to be popular. And you know what happens whenever you put fuel duty up is the Daily Mail staple you to a wall. So that's basically what's happened here. Sure. So that's you think that's his main directive behind doing that, just keeping people happy. I mean, it's yeah. not that he managed to do it with any of the rest of the budget, but um, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, because it does. I mean, it does seem like that, as, as you say, there really wasn't uh, any focus on kind of doing things for environmental benefit at all in this, with the the fuel duty remaining frozen, and then he also halved all the taxes for oil and gas providers. Was that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, um, what? Uh, not halved exactly. So, when you drill uh, oil and gas out of the North Sea, which is obviously something the UK has done for years and years and years, uh, but it's declining quite sharply. Uh, when you drill taxes out of there, you pay, you, you make a lot of profit, and you pay the government tax on that profit. And those taxes have been cut by twenty percent after being cut by about the same amount this time last year as well. And the oil industry has basically got the Chancellor. Uh, over a barrel and are saying to him look price of oil very low you want us to invest and milk every drop it was the chancellor said he wanted to get every drop of oil and gas out of the north sea if you want us to do that when can we have less tax please and the chancellor has gone okay um and that is all part of the scotland situation as you can imagine so there are huge chunks of scotland aberdeen in particular that are very dependent on the oil industry and that had uh, half a billion pounds of government money thrown at it just last month to try and stabilize it a wee bit so what the chancellor's basically done he said this he's come out a few years ago and said this he wants to drill every drop he wants to get hold of every last bit of oil and gas out of the north sea which in climate terms is not a massive problem because the North Sea is declining and it was you know, relatively small in the scheme of things otherwise. But what you need to do is remember that three months ago in Paris, gl- uh, world leaders all stood up and said, we're going to try and keep global temperature rises to one and a half degrees or two degrees max. Uh, and we're all going to do that with the quote is the utmost ambition. So we're all going to do absolutely all we can. If every country in the world did what George Osborne has done and said, well, let's cut all the taxes to drill all the oil that we can, then forget it. You know, it's completely out of kilter with what he and uh, all the other world leaders promised to do. It's the opposite of leadership. And the UK has built its entire economy for a very long time around getting oil and gas out and milking it. And so it should be one of the first countries that admits that that game is over. And instead of trying to keep Aberdeen uh, pumping oil for as long as it can, come up with a really decent transition plan for those communities so we can start making things like renewable energy up there instead. Sure. And I'm assuming a sort of transition plan would take quite a while, considering the extent. As you say, it's something that we've been doing for quite some time. How do you go about transitioning then from from the uh, oil and gas production industry to renewable or, or an alternative energy source? How How would you even begin to do that? Well, that's a really good question. So it does depend where you are. Um, And one of the, uh, I mean, I really sympathise with that. A lot of people talk in highfalutin language like I just did and said, you know, we need a transition plan for the UK and for Aberdeen. What needs to happen is that you need to go to places like Aberdeen and you need to sit down with the council and the chambers of commerce and the industry and the people who'd like to get stuff built up there and a government representative and say, what does the future look like? What could it look like? What's the vision of the local people? What's the vision of the council? What's the vision of the business industry? Where is their industry? 
industry also that wants to come to the UK but for various reasons doesn't think the UK is a good bet. Um, last month, a committee of MPs looked in depth at whether or not everything George Osborne has done on climate change has put investors off, has put green investors off, and concluded, yes, it has, and has significantly increased the cost of doing green business in the UK. So the government at a national level needs to have much better climate change policies, much better support for renewable industries so that companies are more likely to come here. Then at a local level, you work out what the best thing to do is for that particular area. You know, and it might not be renewable energy, it might be something else entirely. It might not even be a, quote, green job. Uh, But what is clear is that one way or the other, Aberdeen is going to have to get off the oil hook. You know, uh, communities that are incredibly uh, reliant on jobs in fossil fuel industries, one way or the other, if we're going to avoid climate change, you're going to have to come up with an alternative. They're going to need help to do that. We can't have what happened in the 80s when the coal mines were just shut and whole communities were devastated. Uh, That's a local thing, it's a national thing, but it's, it's serious and it requires a strategy at both levels. I should say that I am somebody that I'm terrified about climate change. It's something that constantly worries me. And I just think, why aren't we just stopping doing everything that will cause it immediately? I don't understand. Um, well, but, but on that, so that's the that's the key point, isn't it? So that um, we are now at the stage, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We're now at the stage where um, there are losers, right? So for a while, everyone talks about climate change at a very high level in terms of commitments to reductions and lines on graphs and wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have climate change and all the businesses and all the unions and all the all the everyone agreed because nobody saw any immediate implications now what you get is in order to do that you have to put taxes up on dirty things or you have to force the closure of coal uh, mines or coal plants or things like that and and suddenly uh, that's where you start getting the fight and it needn't be i mean there are always going to be losers in any massive industrial transition which is what you need to do but it doesn't have to just be left to the vagaries of the market you could actually sit down and work put some public money behind it and help communities adapt yeah because uh, as you were saying the the government haven't really done anything to kind of encourage renewable energy companies and things to to invest in the uk is they've cut a lot of solar subsidies is that correct yeah so uh, it's not true that the government hasn't done anything so for we're still the best place in the world to uh build offshore wind for kind of obvious reasons because we're you know yeah wet, uh, lovely wet, weather yeah <laughs> windy, yeah um, and so we still lead um pretty much i think this is right we, we still lead investment in in offshore wind uh, but a couple of things have happened at the macro level so at the, in the last six months there's just been this assault after assault since the conservatives took office by themselves on various bits of the green uh, infrastructure that have been set up so the green investment bank which was set up in the last parliament has been privatised. There's been huge cuts to uh, solar, as you mentioned. There's been an ending to a thing called the Green Deal, which was supposed to insulate homes and wasn't great anyway, but now that's gone. And countless other things that I'm not going to I'm not going to reel off. And there's been a, basically it's been very clear that the government's priority has been to rein in the costs of switching to the green transition. Um, and, and in so doing, it has angered investors and it's forcing the UK, uh, Ernst & Young, who are a big bunch of management consultants, do this league table every quarter where the best place in the world to invest in renewable energy is. And the UK used to be in the top five and I think it's just about in the top ten now by the skin of its teeth. It's plunging down. Um, and bearing in mind that we have got the world's strongest law to cut carbon emissions, we are required by law to cut our emissions by 80% by 2050. So this should be a place where investors look at the UK 
and they go, well, look, they need to have loads of low-carbon energy. Uh, why don't we go and open up shop there then? But that isn't the signal that you're getting. All you get from the government is a focus on oil and gas, wringing that out and fracking and trying to do as much of that as possible, not supporting renewable energy. It's desperately short-sighted. Yeah, that is incredibly short-sighted and, re- and really worrying as well that they're still pressing ahead with fracking, even though, it, I mean, and I've been trying to sort of do the reading up on on fracking because when it first started there were equal amounts of oh it's fine or oh it's not uh, it seems to me that the oh it's not reports are much higher now um, but that's something that we're still pressing ahead with in the UK isn't it it is and it's phenomenally well I mean we say pressing ahead with actually there has been no fracking in the UK despite the government having thrown everything it has got at it for the last five years so you know it's been cutting the tax for frackers as well as for North Sea oil and gas it's been leaning on councils incredibly heavily to force them to accept applications even when local people don't want them only a quarter in fact less than a quarter 24% of people in the government's own opinion polls say that they would like they think fracking is a good idea and they would like it in their area um now you know a, a quarter most people are undecided so another quarter say they actively don't want it and most people are undecided but a simple fact of the matter is people don't there is not a great appetite from people to come and be fracked you know we're not the united states where you've got mamba this thing miles and miles of bugger all where no one lives there you know in order to frack in the uk you've got to do it under people's houses so the government changed the law to make that a thing you can do and you've got to do it in the heart of communities and so the government is forcing councils to accept fracking um, even if local councils vote against it as happened up in lancashire Um, it's a constant you know the government wants to do something that not only is it a fossil fuel at a time when we pledge to get off fossil fuels but also people don't want it yeah i mean the idea of just having someone suddenly drilling underneath where you live <laughs> to kind of uh it's, it's injecting gases and I've, I've, i have read about fracking my brain doesn't quite work out what it means it just sounds terrible um yeah. but yeah that's not exactly what you want on your road uh on a daytime i'm pretty sure um it, it, it's sort of interesting as well that i was looking at the announcement for flood defence schemes uh, in the budget. Mm. They said there's going to be £700 million. And judging by how little help they seem to have given areas that have been flooded in the past, is that really enough to help people in, in those areas of England? Well, it's a start, definitely. So it's one of the things where um, a bit of credit where it's due. Uh, the government has had a huge hole, pardon the offence, pardon the, the pun, in its uh, flood defence spending for quite a long time now. So there's this thing called the Committee on Climate Change, which is the government's uh, advisors on the economics of climate change. It's an official thing, uh, you know, a government body. And it basically has said, look, uh, you're not spending enough on flood defences, given that one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Wow. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Climate change is happening and it makes more floods. And it said there is about a 500 million pound spending gap or something like that. So so this 700 million pounds definitely looks on the face of it like a good idea. But all it's really doing is making up for the fact that for years and years and years, there wasn't enough being spent. And then you've seen the devastation that that causes up in places like Cumbria and I was I was looking um getting ready to talk to you I was looking in some of the Cumbria media and and seeing what they made of it and they basically said yeah look fine okay but all you're doing now is giving us money to patch up after the damage mm. yeah sort course. of reactive um, rather than proactive yeah, isn't it? exactly yeah and be, it's yeah. not getting ahead of the curve you know we one of two things is going to happen either that we that the world gets together and stops dangerous climate change happening in which case the government needs to be doing a lot more to lead uh, the fifth largest economy in the world to do that or it isn't and if it isn't then we're going to have more flooding and there's going to be more money needs to be spent on mopping up the damage either way little bits of money here and there which is kind of what you get reactive money sort of politically useful money is not dealing with the sheer scale of the problem yeah it's it's again another area where it feels like sort of they're aiming more i mean overall with the budget they're aiming more to kind of benefit companies that are damaging the planet more than the people that are affected by the damaging of the planet uh which is not the way that i'd do it to be honest um i i was reading the um the institute for european environmental policy report because i had a really quiet sunday yeah. um it was all on the environmental implications of of brexiting um and they said or their conclusion of it was that a full brexit and obviously it depended on the situation we live with whether we stayed in the EEC or not but their concern was if we had a full leave from the EU that would probably leave us in a very vulnerable position uh with environmental legislation um do you think that's the case are you concerned about the EU leaving causing problems with our environmental policies yeah, so uh, there is a load of evidence that has that has looked at this and has basically said um, pretty much, well, not not all, but a large chunk of the UK's environmental laws, things like that protect our habitats and uh, that require us to move to renewable energy. A lot of that comes from Brussels, um, and that there isn't really a great reason to assume that if we left the EU, I mean, given bearing in mind no one quite knows, as you say, what it looks like to leave um, but what we would certainly have to do is uh, environmental campaigners uh, would have to start fighting to protect all of those things at the very least um, you know the default might be that we just get rid of all of those protections and then what has been the most advanced and ambitious environmental law on habitats for example would be scrapped and we'd have to start again um, or maybe it'll be a case of you know we take some things and not others um, it's huge cause I mean you know a personal level I find it personally very worrying um and the main reason for that i think is just because we've got these laws and protections and they exist and they do a good thing and they've they've helped to drive the uk and eu economies towards more renewable energy and they've helped us to be part of the world's largest uh, trading block in international climate negotiations and that's all be very very good and no one quite knows what out looks like and um yeah report that's not the only report that said it wouldn't be a particularly good idea if the eu if the uk were to leave the eu 
Right, that's something that's uh, not been mentioned very much in either of the campaigns so far. And I sort of feel like that's quite an important bit. If somebody said to me, leaving the EU could genuinely damage the state of the planet, you sort of think, yeah, probably shouldn't do that then. Well, exactly. And, and there is a there's a thing called environmentalists for Europe, which is a bunch of some of the biggest green NGOs in the country and some politicians and people like Bill Oddy and people like that who've come together and they've said essentially what you just said, that, you know, it, it's not an argument that you're hearing enough of. Um, and the, at the very least, you should have a good think about whether you think the UK, a more sort of jingoistic, nationalistic, inward looking UK would bother to do as much about what are often global environmental problems like biodiversity loss and climate change and air pollution and stuff like that yeah it's i mean to be totally fair neither of the campaigns seem to give much information on anything yet so i suppose we shouldn't be that surprised uh, remotely and we'll be back with david in just a minute welcome to the official budget 2016 calculator what do you like to drink fizzy orange or coca-cola that is unhealthy and so will be more expensive to lower costs have you tried drinking beer or oil but isn't that worse for me <laughs> so that's the environment part of the budget but what about the rest of it and how does it affect you Well, never fear, because I'm completely unqualified in any area of expertise about it, which I think puts me on a level playing field with George Osborne. And so I've taken it upon myself to explain all you need to know. In education, all schools are to be turned into academies by 2022. Which is great, because before that, schools were only turned into academies if they were failing. But now, thanks to despotic ideology, it's been decided that all schools that aren't privately owned by trust funds are failing, obviously. And what makes this even more scary is that while some academies are doing okay, almost half of academies run by the biggest trust chain, Academies Enterprise Trust, have been rated less than good by Ofsted. They also say that pupils do particularly badly in those schools. And if you heard last week's show where we spoke to Alison Ryan at the ATL Union, you'll know that schools are being railroaded into going with certain trusts by the Department of Education. And so that means by 2022, all kids could well be doing particularly badly wherever they are. Which, I suppose in a weird way, creates some sense of equality across children everywhere. In the economy, the government aims to create a million jobs by 2020 and employment is up by 20,000. Which is great! But self-employment is part of that, and the average self-employed wage is pretty low. I mean, as a self-employed person, I can wholly confirm that, and my boss is a real dick too. Also, zero-hours jobs have risen by over 100,000 in the last 12 months, to 801,000. So, these jobs are about as secure as making sure you're safe from a hurricane by hiding in a cardboard box. On the inflation forecast, it's going to be 0.7% for 2016 and 1.6% for 2017, which is great news for balloons. In personal tax, the 40% tax threshold is rising to £45,000 a year, from 42385 which means that if you earn more money, you can pay even less towards the country that you live and work in. How brilliant. Meanwhile, corporation tax falls to 17%, which is going to be 22 percentage points lower than the US by 2020. George Osborne also stated that anti-tax avoidance will raise 12 billion by 2020. But 
it seems more like his method of actually dealing with tax avoiders is by giving them less tax to pay in the first place. It's a bit like saying, hmm, we have a huge knife crime problem, let's just make sure certain ways of stabbing people are legal, and that will fix it. Tax-free personal allowance is rising from £11,000 to £11,500 in 2017, which George Osborne says is going to take 1.3 million people out of tax altogether. You know, except for all the other tax they have to pay, like VAT, council tax, national insurance, car tax and stamp duty, which of course is assuming that if you're on an £11,500 salary you can ever buy a house, which is completely unlikely, unless you want a cardboard box for that hurricane, which is seeming like a greater and greater plan. People who save a maximum of £4,000 towards a home deposit or retirement get a £1,000 top-up every year until they turn 50, which is nice even though that means that unless you're somewhere near 50 in the first place, you still won't be able to afford a home with that deposit by the time you get there due to rising housing costs. And you probably won't retire for another 30 years either by then if you don't die on the zero hours job you're being overworked at. There's also a new savings scheme for low-paid workers, which equals £1,200 over four years. But the money advice service is to be abolished, which means many of those low-paid workers won't have anyone to advise them on how to get that savings scheme in the first place. Commercial stamp duty has fallen across the board, which means if you're a young person who can't afford to buy a house, it may help you to get on the ladder if you don't mind unsecuring your Wi-Fi and saying your living room is a Bluetooth business. No, I don't know what that means either, but no one really does, so you should be fine. Give it a go. Tolls on the Severn Bridge are going to be halved, which is nice, uh, considering it's free to drive from Wales to England. I think that means you can now demand to get £2.15 for doing so. Hmm. Beer, cider and spirits are frozen, which is not good if you don't like those horrible slush cocktails. And it looks like the 5% VAT on tampons is going to be removed, which is brilliant and actually a very, very good thing. I mean, the 5% VAT on tampons is only there because they're classed as a non-essential luxury item, which is the absolute opposite of true if you're a woman who needs them on a monthly basis. However, it is true if, like me, you're a man who buys them as tiny bath floats for my synchronised swimming team of gerbils. So overall, it's a very good motion for women all over the UK and for Sir Fluffington's side fishtail position in my bathtub. LIBOR funds are going to be spent on children's hospital services, which is also a very good thing, although it does sort of feel like every time children's hospital services are in need, we're going to have to rally round bankers persuading them to start being fraudulent again for the children. So ultimately, who are the winners here? Well, let me tell you, if you're a big corporation without kids who hates wine, tax, the planet, but loves tampons and going to Wales, then congratulations, you are the big winner. And if you're not, well... Look, 2020 isn't that far away. Oh, and of course there's the sugar tax. George Osborne said, I am not prepared to look back at my time here in this parliament doing this job and say to my children's generation, I'm sorry, we knew there was a problem with sugary drinks, we knew it caused disease, but we ducked the difficult decisions and we did nothing. Which is funny, as that's exactly what he's going to have to say to those children about climate change, the housing crisis, the job crisis, the destruction of the NHS and every other problem they'll be facing when they grow up. But still, sugary drinks have been dealt with, so yay! From now on, if liquid has a sugar in it, it's going to cost you more than one that doesn't. And as a type 1 diabetic, I do worry that this means if I have high blood sugars, will I get taxed more? Hmm... Coca-Cola have already rallied against all of this, saying that the tax on sugary drinks will not reduce obesity. Yeah, sure Coca-Cola, and apparently bears aren't Catholic. I mean, who expected that sort of chat from them? 
but you do sort of wonder if this tax is a good thing. I mean, especially when it was championed by village idiot Jamie Oliver, who says things like easy cheesy without any irony. And once he said he didn't understand modern poverty, leaving out how he also doesn't get logic bees or how to tie his shoelaces together. I mean, I can't help but wonder if rather than adding 25p to sugary drinks, we should just stick Jamie Oliver's stupid grinning face on all cans of Fanta to put people off buying it in the first place. Anyway, with a lot more insight into this sugar tax, here's part two of our interview with David. What are your thoughts on the sugar tax? Is that actually a smart move? I mean, I'll admit that I was mainly put off it by seeing the image of Jamie Oliver dancing about it, uh, which <laughs> has made me automatically assume it's bad just based on that. Um, but is is it actually a, a good thing that's going to tackle obesity? Or do you think it's just going to be punishing people without money who are having to buy, you know, less good quality food? Um, I mean, shouldn't this sort of sugar increase be taken up with the food companies rather than people? It's a really good question, isn't it? So um, what the government thinks is going to happen. So when George Osborne introduced it, he describes it as a tax on the companies. So that's the way that he words it, i.e. I think it comes in in 2018. uh, And he says, look, that's a few years to get your house in order. It's perfectly possible to make drinks that taste the same, that are less sugary. So uh, off you go and you've got a couple of years to reformulate your drinks, right? So that would be closer to what you were suggesting, which is, you know, a tax on a tax on the companies. And then if you if your drinks are less sugary, you don't have to pay it. And therefore, it's it's not a tax on you. But the Treasury has admitted, if you look at the small print of uh, of of the policy, it says there could be up to half a billion pounds a year coming in from this thing, which they've earmarked to spend on school sports, which is quite decent. Um, And so if there's half a billion pounds coming in from it it implies that people are paying it which implies that actually it is a tax on people drinking sugar um and they say actually we this is you know the uncertainty on this is massive they just don't know the treasury really doesn't seem to know whether or not companies will make their drinks less sugary or they will pass the costs on if they do pass the costs on it's something like i think six p a can for your um, sort of medium fizziness drink, medium sugary drinks, and eight p a can for the most sugary ones. Um, so it's which, really not that much, is it? Well, it? it depends how you look at it, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. Is is that enough to? If the objective is to change behaviour, is that enough? Well, probably, yeah. That will lead to, uh, a, you know, economic parlance at the margins. It will lead to some people drinking less sugar. Uh, the treasury seems to think half a billion pounds a year will come in from people just buying it anyway. I have to say, I mean, I think the concept of uh, introducing a tax on sugar in general is a good one and the concept of this is not a bad tax necessarily but it is uh, because you know so much of the uh, marketing around drinks there's so much that tilts people towards consuming wanting craving uh fizzy drinks and actually something that slightly corrects that back the other way is a perfectly decent idea if you ask me um but exactly whether or not you know what the impact will be whether companies change or people soak it up i don't know at this stage yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree with you totally that if it raises awareness that there is too much sugar in these drinks, and that is definitely a way forward. I suppose for me, I'm partly baffled by the fact that it's just a tax on, say, sugary drinks, which are quite obviously sugary. I don't think anyone's disputed there isn't enough sugar in Red Bull or anything. Um, but there's so much hidden sugar in food and cereal and chocolate, and, you know, in other areas that seem to be completely ignored by this. So why are they just targeting sugary drinks? 
No, it's a really good question. It's only something like twenty uh, percent, I think, of the of, of you know problem sugars are in fizzy drinks. So that leaves all the other eighty percent. And there's been some stuff where the Institute for Fiscal Studies have been quite, you know, they basically said, I suppose, similar to what I've said, good idea, but isn't this going to have some potentially odd implications? And they've said that you know what you might see is people who want a sugar hit just going and buying something else instead, rather than a can of yeah, a can of fizzy. You can drink. get a diet coke and a chocolate, <laughs> and then you're certain, exactly, yeah, 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 <laughs> quite. Um, and yes, it's. And so you've got a choice, haven't you? You can either say um, this here sugary drink tax is a waste of time because it only tackles some of the problem, or you can say, well, let's see how that works. Um, and if it's a, you know if it works well and people don't revolt in the streets, and if it raises lots of money for school sports, then maybe we can extend it broader. Um, there is actually one Coca Cola and the like are launching a legal challenge. I notice against the against the fact that it's you know discriminatory insofar as if you are say Starbucks and you have an extremely sugary mock choc chip frappuccino that's not covered but if you then go to the counter and buy a bottle of, of coca-cola that is covered and you can kind of see their point actually yeah um, so i i think um it's the start of something and I'm, I'm keen to see how it works and i think you were never going to get um just the sheer scale of opposition to taxing all sugar very highly in political terms means you probably had to start somewhere sure yeah that does make sense and, and am i right in thinking like you say about the starbucks mocha um i was reading the the ifs said that the sugary drinks tax operates a bit, and and to be fair, I didn't know that the EU tax duty on alcohol worked like this, uh, where that more alcoholic drinks were actually taxed less than less alcoholic drinks due to a weird curve in the, in the in in the way that tax works, uh, and they say that the IFS say that this is the same with sugary drinks where, you know, uh, weaker sugary drinks are actually taxed less than oh sorry taxed more than the very very sugary ones. Is that mm-hmm. correct? I mean, that sounds bonkers mm-hmm. if it's correct. I didn't think that was the case. I thought, and I'm prepared to be wrong on this, so I'm sure people will email in and tell you if I am. I thought there was two <laughs> bands to this, or well, three bands, which is uh, below a certain sugariness, I think five grams, you don't have to pay any tax. If it's five grams to something else, then you pay some tax, and then above that you pay some tax more. And I, one, what I thought the IFS was saying um, was that it's a bit daft that there's a sort of some arbitrary cut-off level whereby the tax just jumps. So you have like medium sugar and high high sugar drinks and wouldn't it be more sensible to have it it's not actually a tax then is it wouldn't it be more sensible to have a tax per unit of sugar right so that you just pay you know however sugary your drink is you pay x and it gets you know slightly slightly more so the idea is that beyond a certain point beyond if you once you've triggered that higher rate of tax you're taxing an extremely 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 sugary drink as much as an extremely sugary one so there's no kind of incentive for um for bringing that down Right, so it does, that does make a bit more sense. I'm sure you are correct. I, it's highly likely that I have read it completely wrongly. Uh, that is how it tends to be. Um, I've realised that normally I get to the end of these interviews and uh, you realise that, oh, everything we've said is just quite bleak for the outcome of the world. So I wonder, is there anything that people should do if they are concerned uh, about the fact that the budget hasn't really dealt with climate change very well um, and the future of the planet? Is there anything that people should do or that you should that we could be pushing them towards? Yeah, a couple of things, I guess. Well, nil desperandum for a start, right? Because the UK, what George Osborne does or doesn't do and what what politicians in the UK do, it does matter insofar as, you know, we're one of the world's leading economies and we're historically rich and all that sort of stuff. Um, But the world is decarbonising. The world is going 
green. You know, uh, there are huge commitments in China and India and America, and the UK is not exactly doing nothing. It's just not, you know, necessarily up to the scale of what needs to be done. Um, and the world, this is the most irritating thing about budgets like the Chancellor's for me. It's it's not that they. Um, it's not that they're absolutely terrible and awful, it's just that they seem to be trying to eke out a fossil fuel future for a bit longer, trying to put off that day when we have this radical industrial transition, or even worse, sitting back and waiting for other countries to do it, and then we come along and sweep up the sweep up the credit. So history's going to look back on budgets like this, where the world had realised how big a problem climate change is and the Chancellor didn't mention it once. It's going to look back at it and say that was the dying breaths of a sort of old school worldview of a, of a worldview that wasn't ready to change but i don't think it will say it derailed anything it will just say it, it'll look a bit odd historically um and if you want to you know if you want to do something write to your mp the more that politicians hear that the people uh, are angry about climate change and, and want budgets to include them the more that they that the, the mps get that message the more that that'll filter through to westminster and then the next time mr osborne or whoever it is by that point is standing up and doing the budget um maybe there'll be a higher chance of getting something in Great. So write to your MP, tell them how concerned you are uh, and do all that while having a low sugary drink. Yes, that's, uh, that's an excellent bit of advice. Um, OK, very last question. Um, I uh, this is a bit of a silly one. I asked uh, some of our Twitter followers on the Partly Political uh, Twitter account um, just to tell me what they thought was actually inside George Osborne's little red briefcase. Uh, I wonder <laughs> if you had any any ideas. <laughs> uh I think it's very similar to the answer that Quentin Tarantino gives whenever anyone asks him what's inside, <laughs> what's inside that briefcase, which is there's a literal answer, which is uh, you know a light bulb with some bricks in it. And I imagine George Osborne inside there has just got a couple of bricks in there or something like that. But the, more, the, the answer I like more is that Tarantino says it's whatever you want it to be. Um, so given that budgets appear to be, as we're discovering in the last... A few days appear to be made up in some sort of white heat of grabbing for anything that looks politically salient, hoping the numbers add up and bunging it out. Probably whatever you want it to be is uh, as close as you're going to get. That's fantastic. I um, I do think it's really sad that it doesn't light up when he opens it. That would really make my day. (laughs) Thanks to David for some actual insight into the budget. You can check out the New Economics website at neweconomics.org and on their Twitter at NEF. They have a more full response to the budget on their website that's very, very worth checking out. You can also follow David at his own Twitter account at PowellDS, that's P-O-W-E-L-L-D-S, so go and do that now. David's answer about what was in George Osborne's briefcase was brilliant. Um, I did ask that question to our Twitter followers at the at Bro account, and I got some absolutely brilliant answers. So here are some of my favourites. Uh, Gareth, that's at G.A. Bundy, said inside the case is a small thermos flask of beans and sausages, a banana and his teddy bear. I can tell by his grin, which is absolutely lovely. Uh, although I also imagine when I see that grin that he'd have exactly the same expression if he was eating cake or bludgeoning a puppy to death it's just that sort of face uh, eleanor morton that's at eleanor morton she's a very very funny stand-up too. check her out she said inside his case is a copy of each peach pear plum which is brilliant uh, i'm guessing he reads that regularly to remind himself of cinderella's workfare situation and how a fairy tale ending still managed to come from it even though that's completely unlike the reality uh, Johnny Monsoor, he said uh, it contains Davy Jones's beating heart, Jeremy Corbyn's poppy, limited edition Looney Tune pogs that came free in Watsits. Very, very good. Um, Daniel underscore Woodrow, he said the liquefied souls of puppies, lambs and kittens, which he has to drink from hourly to delay his inevitable descent to Hades. 
which would sort of make sense because the budget speech was just under an hour and most of the times he's in the commons it is just about under an hour yeah let's keep an eye on this people there could be something there and then uh, a lovely bit of wordplay from Simon Spooner, that's at Nuncio2. He says, how to be decent, it's his little red book. You see that red? He spelled that R-E-A-D. It's like, it's like red. Oh, it's brilliant, isn't it? Brilliant. Well done, Simon. Very well done. Uh, hopefully we'll be asking a few more questions from our Twitter account soon. Uh, so please do send in your answers and follow that account now. Probably do it the other way around. Otherwise, it won't really make sense. <laughs> Welcome to the official budget 2016 calculator. Are you disabled? Yeah. Ha, 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 ha. But I thought you cancelled the PIP cuts. Yes, we have. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, and in this week's show, I realised that I've completely forgotten to mention Labour. Which is a bit of a shame, because Labour have actually said some things about the budget that were quite good. You know, including demanding that George Osborne step down. And Jeremy Corbyn said a nice line about how it's quite funny that George Osborne blames the last government, because he was the last government, so that was right. But just like Jeremy Corbyn completely didn't mention Ian Duncan Smith's resignation when questioning Cameron in the Commons on Monday... I'm gonna forget to mention Labour, and we'll come back to it at some point in several weeks' time when it's all completely irrelevant to do so. I do sometimes wonder if Jeremy Corbyn is operating on a Derren Brown type level, whereby he doesn't mention the one thing we all think he really, really should, and instead that makes us all think about it lots. That has to be it, right? Right? It's the Partly Big Society. That's right, it's time for this week's Partly Big Society. Firstly, a huge thanks to Jane Mortimer and Daniel Barrett who sent me pictures of the party gifts that they sent to Hampshire Council after last week's Partly Big Society. Daniel sent some candles, not enough for 90 on a cake, which is nice. He said he's sure that the Queen would understand. And Jane sent some flags and other bits, which are very, very funny. And they sent excellently written letters to the councillors there too. I've posted some pictures up of both of them on our Facebook and Twitter page if you'd like to take a look. And I'm going to try and set up a Partly Big Society page on the website soon too. If you haven't taken part in last week's one, you can still. There is, I mean, there's no real limit to it. I think the Queen's Party isn't until June or July. So do take time to listen to last week's show and get sending them some really crappy, cheap party gifts when you can. This week's Partly Big Society is an easy one and requires no archaic postage methods. For all you kids out there who don't even understand what a letter and stamp are. For this week, Sunderland Council are threatening to cut funding for all the lollipop men and women in the area. And no, I don't mean people with massive heads and tiny skinny bodies. Although, I suppose they might do. No, I mean the incredibly useful road safety people who help supervise children to safely cross the street on the way to and from school. The local council's papers on it say that the cut will affect the most vulnerable group, which is child pedestrians, and yet they still seem incredibly keen to cut all the funding. So this week, let's get Partly Big Society working, and if you could all follow at Sunderland Lolly on Twitter, and if you check their feed, there's a link to a petition to stop those cuts. 
So get on the case, people. Sign that position. Share it round. Let's get loads and loads of signatures to tell the council not to do this. And hopefully those large-headed skinny people can continue to help kids avoid awful road accidents. And that's it for this week's show. Thanks again for listening, and if you do enjoy the show, please do let us know via our Twitter account, at Parpolbro, or also at Parpolbro on Facebook. Or you can even email us at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or better yet, give us a review on iTunes and say something nice, like plinth, which is always very nice to say. Plinth, that's great. As Parliament takes a break for Easter, uh, I might also take next week off too, mainly because I need to write an entirely new stand-up show for the lovely McCunlith Festival at the end of April, and I still haven't done any of that yet. Um, however, if something important happens, I may be swayed to release something, or maybe I'll put a bit of stand-up out, uh, or something like that, so don't worry, you will have something for your ears. Otherwise, uh, we'll definitely be back in two weeks' time. And in the meantime, do check out um, Andrew Maxwell's Radio 4 show, The Late Agenda on the iPlayer, as it's really, really very, very good. Um, He's an absolutely fantastic comedian, and that show is all about populism. Uh, And I saw the live recording on Sunday, and it was brilliant, so do check that out. Uh, This week's show was brought to you by some numbers that were due in November, but I've brought them forward to seem clever. And a giant duck. Welcome to the official budget calculator 2016. How old are you? 25. This is a budget for the next generation. May we suggest you prepare yourself by watching such films as High Rise, Akira, 1984, Battle Royale, Mad Max Fury Road, Minority Report, The Hunger Games, A Clockwork Orange, Wally. Wally? Yes. Have you seen our environmental policies? And that Eva is so cute. Give them a gift they'll never forget, because they'll still have it years later. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. Because a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. So be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Code GRATEFULAG23. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.